Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week, we feature part two with the voice of the Green Bay Packers and former voice of the Chicago Bears, Wayne Larravee. Yeah, you know, I grew up on skis in New England. My father was uh, took a job part-time as a ski patrolman at a little local ski hill, Bosque in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And my dad's pay was that the whole family, my two sisters and I, uh, my mom, we'd all get to ski free. So we got a season pass to the ski area. And uh, we would ski Friday nights, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, every week. Um, and so that's how I grew up on skis on bad snow in New England. Imagine being the voice of the Chicago Bears and then taking a similar job with your hated rival. That's exactly what Wayne Larravee did, and he's been the voice of the Packers now for 24 seasons and counting. In part two of our interview with his versatile play-by-play man, Larravee recounts how he began his career, fashioned the term dagger, and his love of skiing. You know, just about every play-by-play announcer has a favorite calling card, and yours is the dagger when it appears a game is over. So when and why the dagger? Well, it, it stemmed from an old basketball term we used to use all the time. And I was doing the Bulls one Saturday night um, in 2000. And I don't know, the back and forth possessions that came down to somebody hits a three-point shot. Now it's a two-possession game and there's like five seconds to go. And there's your dagger. Rodgers gets the snap, blitzes on, Rodgers scrambles He's left, winds up, rainbow. Bob. He's got Cobb to the 10, to the 5, yes. to the end zone, touchdown, and a dagger! Oh my goodness, an NFC North Division Championship dagger of 47 yards! <laughs> and it just took off from there. And if I didn't use it the following week, some people were asking me, well, where was the dagger? What was the dagger play? That type of thing. So it kind of, uh, you know, turned into one of those um, types of things that people just look forward to. And to answer your question about, well, when do you throw the dagger? Um, it's not quite like basketball. It's not, you know, as cut and dried as that. For me, it's kind of a feel type of thing. When I see how a game is going, I see what a team is doing. Somebody gets up by double digits at a certain point in a game. And, and um, you know, I, I just know in my heart that that other team's not going to be able to come back. And, uh, you know, so I throw the dagger sometimes. I want to take you back to the uh, beginning of all this. Lee, Massachusetts, where you grew up. And pretty much like most of us, you found your voice in the business early. So you're attending Emerson College, and you practiced in a building that had already become famous, the Boston Garden. Well, you know what, George? Um, 
my impetus getting into the business was as a young kid listening to Marv Albert on radio broadcast the New York Knicks games in New York. 53-47 in the forecourt. Ben Arsdale back outside to Bryant for a one-hander. That is no good. Rebound, fought for, pulled down by Tresfad. Up court it goes to Bing. The Pistons break quickly. Bing behind the back dribble, still with the ball. Look at that magic as he hands to Tresfad, who drives and puts it in. You had to see the move by Dave Bing to believe it. I thought he was the best radio play-by-play -play announcer I'd ever heard. Um, Jim Durham was right up there with him, the late Jim Durham. And there were several others that are very good. Um, not so much today. NBA radio is no longer a priority for these teams, and it's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. Anyway, um, so you don't have really good people overall throughout the league doing NBA radio for the most part. But I, I was inspired by that, and I always – Felt I could, you know, I, I would love to have uh, become an NBA radio play-by-play -play guy. Um, now, what I would do is I found, I don't know, a bag tag. You know, one of these bag tags that uh, from NBC Sports. I found it somewhere. Yeah. And I, I attached it to my typewriter box. Uh, you know, the, you carry your typewriter around in. And then what I did with that was I, I took my tape recorder microphone and put it in the box, put that bag tag on it. It looked very official, NBC Sports. I dressed up. I got into a coat and tie, and I used to go to the Boston Garden, go into the back entrance where the media went in, and um, would go in and go to the uh, sky boxes, the hockey boxes. Now, remember, this is before there were sky boxes or any of this other stuff. Oh, I, I mean, remember it well from the Chicago Stadium, sure. Yeah. The basketball was done on the floor of the stadium or in the Boston Garden, the second level. Hockey was up on the third level, and those boxes were empty during Celtics games. So I would go in there, and I would broadcast. I was all alone in this box. I could broadcast the whole game, and I broadcast every game, every home game I was in town for during college, and it became really a thing for me. Even to when we got to the NBA Finals, the Bucks and Celtics, I got in and did that um, and even brought a classmate of mine is a color guy with me and we would broadcast those games into my tape recorder and I'd go back and listen to the tape um it was great uh you know it was a great experience and it taught me how to do play-by-play -play. the only way to really do play-by-play -play, it's repetitions as uh, the players would say you know give me some reps and that's what you have to do today people come into play-by-play -play, they don't necessarily work their way up doing high school games and then college games and then pro games as we did back then a lot of times you get into a radio station or television station you're you're on the staff you're producing maybe you get on the air a little bit maybe you host a talk show and then you move into play-by-play -play from there and it's not the same kind of um, uh, you don't get the same kind of play-by-play -play caliber announcer so you began your pro career with stops in some small towns. A lot of people do that. In 1978, a big break, you became the radio voice of the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, I got to let you know, it was when I was freelancing back then that I began a relationship with a fellow named Kevin Harlan. And if I'm not mistaken, he replaced you as you left for the Bears. You know what? We hired Kevin Harlan. He was a junior, I want to say, at the University of Kansas. Yes. And we, uh, we hired him where I was at KCMO in Kansas City. And uh, our people decided that it's like 1979 at the time. My first year was 78. But we decided we're going to go with something revolutionary. Um, a one-hour, uh, two-hour pregame show. Two hours. And we needed somebody to produce it. And uh, Kevin Harlan and I had run into each other at the University of Kansas. I was dating uh, the girl that would become my future wife, uh, Julie, who was finishing up at Kansas as well. And so uh, we hired Kevin to come in and produce this show on the weekends. And he was dynamite. And he lined up uh, 
correspondents across the league. Uh, you know, you were, I believe, what, Chicago at the time? And yes. Had, uh, Bill DeFabio in Pittsburgh. He had all kinds of guys. And every week there, there was kind of a jump, a wraparound. We would go from one place to the other. Um, you know, and all these correspondents would give us uh, an update on what's going on and preview of the game. And then later on, uh, they would report on the game, that kind of thing. He put that all together. Uh, it was the first two-hour pregame show in NFL radio, period. And he did a bang-up job with that. Well, later on, as time wound on, he graduated from Kansas. And the, uh, Neil Funk moved from uh, Kansas City to Philadelphia to do the uh, uh, 76ers. He leaves the Kings radio and uh, Kevin Harlan moved over to do Kings. And then a couple of years later, I moved up to Chicago to do the Bears and Kevin moved over to uh, broadcast the Kansas City Chiefs. So it, it was it, that's how he kind of got started. And, and it was great. He was he was awesome in that role. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We resume with Wayne Larrabee on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I would be remiss if uh, I don't mention another individual a man who describes you in only glowing terms, and that's Hub Arkish. My two best friends in the broadcast business uh, are Wayne Larrabee and, and Chuck Swirsky for fairly obvious reasons. <laughs> oh, Hub is uh, Hub became one of my favorite people in the industry. At first, it was because I loved working with him on the air, but I, I just I love him as a brother, um, and I, I hope he feels somewhat the same way. But I can tell you. Um, I 1985. It was a thrill for me just to meet him because I was a, in when I was in Kansas City. Pro Football Weekly was that was the Bible uh, in the NFL. That was the every Wednesday. I was just at the uh, doorstep waiting for that to come and uh, in the mail. And it was just uh, you know his dad put that together. Um, you know, so when I had an opportunity to work with Hub in 1985, that was just a dream come true for me. And we've been very, very good friends ever since. We did a syndicated radio show uh, nationally for 25 years. He's just the best at breaking down and analyzing the NFL uh, that I've ever seen. And and by the way, doing it with very few or no notes. The guy um, has just kind of a photographic memory. Um, he's absolutely the best analyst uh, I, I've ever been around for NFL. During your time here, you were, of course, not only the voice of the Bears, you spent 17 years as the TV voice of the Bulls. And if I'm not mistaken, they had some pretty good teams while you were here. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they did. It's interesting about that because Jim Durham, um, you know, left and it took, I always say, I used to say this to Jim, you know, it only took three guys to replace you because they hired Neil Funk to do radio. They hired Tom Dore to do uh, cable and they hired me to do over the air on WGN TV. And uh, so it took three of us to replace Jim Durham after the first uh, Bulls championship run. And, um, you know, Jim Durham was as good as it gets. He was a great, great Hall of Fame announcer and uh, died way too young, and that's for sure. But at any rate, it was funded to do and um, to be on that group. You know, after the 85 Bears and the run they had after 85, you know, I mean, the Bears were the big deal in the NFL for a number of years after 1985. But to be a part of that and then to to uh, pick it up with the Bulls because they became like, it was like following a rock team, a rock mm -hmm. group around the country. It was just amazing to be a part of that. There's a different shot clock on the left, game clock on the right side of your screen. Oh, Pips there. Beautifully done. I didn't know if he was going to see him. He certainly did drop the pass to Pip. He's got 18, now 10 the quarter. Red, that's got to be at least four field goals the Bulls have had off the baseline in the back door on that play. That's right. They turn their head and the Bulls streak down the baseline and get it. You know, you mentioned Jim Durham, who, of course, was not only just a great broadcaster, but a great human being. And I've been around long enough to sample many play-by-play -play guys. My book, he's the best ever. I, I, he was the only guy who could paint a game on radio as if you were watching it on TV. The inbounds pass comes into Jordan. Here's Michael at the foul line. A shot on Elo. Good! The Bulls win! The Bulls win! Set the Cleveland Cavaliers! Michael Jordan hits it at the foul line. One to 100. 20,273 in stunned silence here in the Coliseum. Yeah, I think radio, the thing I loved about doing radio basketball is the challenge uh, because, you know, you have to pick and choose what you describe. If you describe every bounce of the ball, especially at the NBA level, uh, you will lose your listeners. Uh, they'll be confused. There's just too much there. So you almost have to edit what you describe and how you describe it. Um, but I thought Jim was as smooth and as good as anybody had a great voice. There was a tenor to his voice, uh, Marv Albert before him in New York with the Knicks. Um, there was just a great, um, they captured it with their voice uh, and not just the words they use, George, but their inflection, the inflection they used and the way they describe things. Um, you know, I have often told this to people, the inflection of your voice can tell a listener almost more than any words you can uh, use to describe what you're absolutely uh, about. And, and I think that's a big part of play by play. You know, you also worked some Cubs games and had the pleasure and experience of working with the iconic Ron Santos. So tell me a story I don't know about that experience. <laughs> Ron Santo. <laughs> I, I've never laughed so hard. Then when I've been with Ron Santo and Tom Brenneman and the, and the group on the uh, and Steve Stone, when we all were doing the Cubs games and and I filled in on the Cubs, you know, radio and TV uh, for a number of years as Harry was missing games with his health and that type of thing. And and there was one year or two years when I did almost a full season uh, with them. And it was great. Uh, we had some great times. I happened to be watching ESPN and the Marlins game, which was a pretty good ball game. And they had a shot of Jeff Torberg flossing. And then, you know, just flipping it, floss. I mean, very rude. I, I believe everybody should floss, but in private. It's like you. You notice I haven't flossed anymore up here because that's embarrassing. Ronnie was, um, oh, just so fiery and passionate. 
about everything, but especially about the Cubs. And, you know, he was just, he was the best. And, and, you know, we would do a game, uh, let's say we're in Philadelphia and we're doing a game and we get out of there, the stadium, we get back to the hotel. It's about 11 o'clock. And I say to Ronnie, I said, Ronnie, let's get one nightcap in the lobby bar. Just one night. And, and Ronnie's kind of upset because the Cubs lost. All right. Just one, well, just <laughs> one uh, turned into many more than that. And three <laughs> o'clock in the morning, we're getting escorted out of the bar after talking about everything. And, and there was nothing that Ronnie wasn't passionate about, but he was one of the most wonderful people I've ever been around and met in sports. He was just terrific. Great sense of humor. Um, you know, I, I, I just, he would have loved uh, that Cubs championship run. I mean, that's what he was living for. You know, I would call him from time to time, get a little bit of information. And, and sometimes he sounded as if he didn't want to talk. And 20 minutes later, he was finishing answering your first question. Yeah. I mean, he really was something else. <laughs> you know, I remember one time, uh, you know, they were wanted me to do Cubs more full-time type of thing. And I was doing, you know, basketball and football and I was doing big 10 football and basketball and really liked all of that. And just baseball was getting to be, you know, the, my year was getting to be too full of, of games. And um, the thing about baseball that's interesting. And I, I, you know, those guys who do it actually have to, it's their lifestyle uh, because, you know, it's funny and I'm doing football games and I'm doing basketball games and you always get a break of days between games. I remember coming back from a two week road trip out West and we get back into town, all of us are saying, oh, it's great to be home. And then I, I get up the next morning and say, wait a minute, I got to go to the ballpark. I got to do another game. And, and that's the thing about baseball. So I was kind of looking to pull back. And I remember Ron Santo got on the phone with my wife, Julie, and he said, Julie, it's baseball. I don't get it with these young guys. How come they don't want baseball? It's, it's the only game to do. And, and, you know, he was kind of pleading with her. But that's the kind of guy he was. He was just so passionate and and so loyal and just a wonderful, wonderful person. Uh, we we all miss him dearly. Tom Brenneman felt like he was a father figure to him. Um, you know, Steve Stone used to to kind of like to needle him just a little bit, get him going, and it didn't take much on our road trip, golf trips uh, on the road to to get Ronnie going. He was just a wonderful person, and boy, we miss him dearly to this day. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Drag through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. 
Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Yeah, I've asked this question of many play-by-play voices, including the aforementioned Marv Albert. Instead of the best game or maybe greatest game you broadcast, what's the most electric event you ever attended? Wow. Um you know, from uh, the two Super Bowls are pretty electric. 56 seconds to go in Super Bowl 45. Three receivers left, two to the right. Ruffersberger in an empty shotgun. Here's the snap. He looks, he throws it. And off the hands, off the hands of the antenna receiver, Wallace. Williams has the coverage. And there is your Super Bowl You know, I, I would have to say that, but the final four, and I had a chance to work for Turner Sports on the final four on the uh, local cast a couple of times. Uh, that's an incredible event. Um, the World Series, I've been to a, several World Series, game seven of the World Series, uh, Miami Marlins, Cleveland Indians. Uh, we happen to be doing a Bears game uh, that was rescheduled from Sunday night in that stadium. Uh, to Monday night because of the World Series. So we were able to go to the World Series, see Game 7. That's an incredible event. But, George, I would have to say of all the events, probably the Super Bowl. Uh, Kentucky Derby is an incredible event, but the Super Bowl, to me, is, is the biggest event I've ever been to. Your voice has been heard everywhere, including, as you mentioned, the Big Ten Network. So you've had one hell of a hectic schedule and barely missed a game, though you actually did, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, We've had a lot of close calls over the years. And this is back when the airlines were, well, you could rely on the airlines and the airlines had options for you. So I could do a game and somewhere on a uh, Saturday afternoon and get out of uh, uh, State College, Pennsylvania and back to Chicago for a Bulls game Saturday night. Um, you know, back then. And I remember doing a game at Columbus one time and getting to Chicago that night, uh, a noon game in Columbus. I had uh, three flights. If I missed uh, one, the first flight, I could get the second or even the third and get back to Chicago in time for the Bulls game that night. Uh, that's not the case anymore. But here was the situation one time when I'm doing a Big Ten game at Michigan. Okay, easy car trip to the airport from Michigan. It's an early game. I've got a DePaul game that night on WGN-TV at Madison Square Garden. Should be no problem, right? I mean, uh, I've got the plane flight and everything else. So here we are on the plane getting ready to go to New York. And all of a sudden, it's not weather in the Midwest, but weather in New York City. And they cancel our flight. We aren't going into New York City. Nobody is. And I have now missed a a, a telecast. And uh, John Mengelt, I don't know if you remember him, was working the games at the time. Rainmaker. Yeah. And and so it was up to him to do the play-by-play, which he was more than equal to the task, by the way. (laughs) I think John felt he could have been a play-by-play guy. And for one night, he was. I want to talk about a, a hobby of yours. I wouldn't even call it a hobby. It's a passion, and that is skiing, which to me is just an incredibly dangerous sport. However, you have skied, and you have skied plenty all over this country. 
Yeah, you know, I grew up on skis in New England. My father was uh, took a job part-time as a ski patrolman at a little local ski hill, Bosque in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. And my dad's pay was that the whole family, my two sisters and I, uh, my mom, we'd all get to ski free. So we got a season pass to the ski area. And uh, we would ski Friday nights, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, every week. Um, and so that's how I grew up on skis on bad snow in New England. Later, when I moved to the Midwest, we started skiing Colorado. And so all of the uh, summit areas, um, uh, you know, Keystone, Arapahoe, Breckenridge, Copper Mountain, Vail, Beaver Creek, and all those areas. Um, and, you know, eventually we made our way. Somebody said, well, you ought to try Park City, which we did about 35, 40 years ago. And we found that whereas in Denver, you fly into the airport and you're two hours, maybe two and a half hours from the area you're going to ski in. When you fly into Salt Lake City, Utah, you're 40 minutes from the lift line of Park City Mountain, of Deer Valley, of Alta, of Snowbird, of uh, Brighton and Solitude, all five or six great ski areas right there. So Utah became a place that we found to be a little more convenient to go to. And that's uh, where we ski primarily now. And I don't know if you believe in this, uh, George, I don't want to get religious here, but um, I, I didn't really know purgatory existed. But I did this at a ski area called Purgatory <laughs> down in Durango, Colorado. Um, but, you know, it's just a ski accident, just a broken thumb. But yeah, when you think of an injury in the sport of skiing, you immediately think of a leg, a knee and what have you. This wasn't that. How the <laughs> heck did you do this? <laughs> well, I was skiing on some really bad snow. I, I, I would call it New England snow. It hadn't snowed down there in southwest uh, um, Colorado in like two weeks. So we're skiing on ice. They've got corn snow over the ice and we have flat lighting. In other words, it's cloudy. And most skiers will tell you, all skiers will tell you what you're looking for is a bluebird day, not a cloud in the sky, bright sunshine. You can read the snow because that's what skiing is all about. Reading the snow, knowing where the bumps are, and where to turn, that type of thing. When the lighting is flat, you can't see any of that. So I'm coming down a head wall and I somehow, some way, stuck my right ski pole in between my skis. It caught on my right ski. I turned and tumbled to the left, um, hit my hip hard, hit my head with a helmet on. That was no problem. But my ski pole stuck and it ripped my uh, thumb back mm. and uh, I broke two bones uh, below the thumb itself. So I had to get that repaired. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All I know is that when when I was younger, I was doing a lot of cross country skiing and, and some of that in Colorado, I tried to do the, you know, the downhill. So you start at the, the bunny hill. All I know is I kept falling and I didn't know how to get up. And I looked at a friend of mine and said, can you find me a tennis court? I want to go play tennis. <laughs> I don't blame you, George. Good idea. It doesn't appear, Wayne, as if you're about to lay down your microphone. How much longer do you want to do this? Um, this year, and then we'll see what happens after that, George, uh, at this stage of my career, you know, uh, I've been winding down for, for a while now, and, um, I'd like to keep going, I think, uh, you know, but it, I, I don't think I have that, um, I don't think I'll be the person that, uh, that makes that decision. I think that in our business, George, it always seems to be someone else who makes that decision for you. Very few people like a Vin Scully uh, get to go out on their own terms. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I know this year we're doing the Packers. It's uh, as Aaron Rodgers says, this is the last dance. Uh, I hope it's not. 
but we'll see and and we'll see where everything goes from here but um i would certainly like to continue uh, i've done the packers for 23 years 25 sounds like a nice uh, number but you know what I, i'm not sure um because i uh, one thing i don't want to do is is hang on and not be um uh, you know, as good as I ever was. I, I, I just don't want to get into a situation where, you know, I become a, a mere shell of what I used to be. I asked this final question to all my guests. If not for broadcasting, what would you have been? I would love to have been a real estate agent. I like real estate, actually. I think that's what I might do after this year, George, is become a real <laughs> estate. You know, I, I like real estate, especially vacation real estate out west in the Rockies, that kind of thing. Um, I, I've really, uh, you know, I really enjoy that. I, I think I'd get my license and be a real estate agent. I, I, I do like that. I've enjoyed the processes where we bought and sold homes and that type of thing. And, and um, you know, uh, that, that to me, I think I'd be a real estate agent if I wasn't broadcasting. <laughs> wow. Imagine somebody looking and finding a real estate agent and his name is Wayne Larravee. <laughs> so that would be good in some places, not so good in others. What an absolute joy it is to do this with you. You've made your mark here and in Green Bay, and I really value the many times that we saw each other through the years. Thank you, Wayne Larrabee, for telling me a story I don't know. You know, I tell you what, it's it's great to be on with you. I, I've always respected you over the years. You're one of the great pros and one of the great people I met in Chicago, and, uh, you know, very happy to do it. My thanks to the Packers Radio Network, the late and great WHN in New York, the Bulls Radio Network, and WGN-TV for those wonderful highlights. My thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing and Vienna B for their generous support. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.